welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today we have Paul Lindley, OBE, entrepreneur, founder of Ella's Kitchen and now social campaigner. We're delighted to have you on, Paul. Thanks very much. James, thank you so much. Very humble to be associated with the word unicorn. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So please, can you give us a roundup of your career and where you started from and then through to Ella's Kitchen and and what you do now. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my story is really, I left university, really didn't know what to do, and I became a chartered accountant with KPMG, really thinking it will delay time until I know what I want to do, but it will give me a great grounding in business. And all these years later, being able to understand a PL and a balance sheet and why cash is so vital and, and all the internal controls that are needed, which are absolutely vital to uh, a startup and a scale-up business, I, I got grounded in. But I knew I didn't want to be a suited or booted guy through my career. So when I got my qualification, I'd worked in America for a little bit, got some experience there, came back and I joined Nickelodeon. I joined as the financial controller and I stayed for basically 10 years and ended up as the general manager and moved from sort of the finance guy to the brand and the commercial and the communications person. And I, I guess over that time, I learned that sort of marketing and branding and, and communications isn't a cost, it's a huge investment and it's absolutely vital to get trust um, from people to buy your products or to work from you. And then I used all of that combined experience to give me confidence for an idea that I had for my own business, which was Ella's Kitchen, which was organic baby food, trying to uh, improve kids' lives by helping them have a better relationship with food from the very earliest days. That business went from a seed of an idea to the UK's biggest baby food company within seven years, now at about 35% market share of the UK and in sort of 50 countries around the world. And rode that journey, all the highs and the lows, doubling turnover every single year for the first seven years uh, to $100 million. Um, and then got to a point where I sold the company to give it its legacy, to ensure that it was sustainable and can, can grow to deliver its mission. And that was back in 2013. I stayed involved as chairman for a while, but I then tried to use my passions, my experience, energy I could deliver to two areas really and do a plethora of things across two areas. One is trying to show that business is just this fantastic force for good in society. It brings innovation, it brings change and I work with a B Corporation movement. I set up a competition for entrepreneurs with a social impact aspect called Just Imagine If. I am invested in and I chair fantastic craft beer business called Toast Ale that works with a circular economy to try and reduce uh, food waste. And just in the last few weeks, I've invested in and chair a business called Smash, which uh, helps young people buy healthier food at a discount. And then the other area I try and use my experience and really my passions for is, is around children's rights and children's welfare and trying to use entrepreneurship and all the skills and experience and networks that I learned in my Ellis Kitchen years and, and subsequently to try and help think differently in public policy and charities, social enterprise. So, for example, I, I work for the Mayor of London and chair a child obesity task force, looking at the, the huge problem, the fact that 40% of kids in London are at an unhealthy weight. I uh, chair and founded a human rights organisation in the UK called Robert Kennedy Human Rights. I'm so privileged to sit on the board of Sesame Street, Sesame Workshop, 
just the company with the best mission statement ever, a non-for-profit company. It's there purely to help kids grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. And I think that should be the mission statement of human beings. And then in between all of that, I managed to write a book called Little Wins, which really takes all of that experience and says, you know, the thing I've learned sitting in my 50s now is that the best people we ever were was when we were five years old. And if we can recapture some of that imagination and free thinking and and self-confidence that we had then, we can solve some of our world's problems through business, through human ingenuity, uh, and through the ability to imagine what doesn't exist and make it exist. So busy life, but, you know, hopefully there's a long way to go still yet. Wow. I mean, that is amazing. And there's so much we can touch on. So hopefully we get through some of it. So where did the idea for Ella's Kitchen come from? And what was it like kind of escaping the corporate world? And how long did you take until you you made that breakaway? Yeah, uh, great questions to sort of understand me, I suppose. You know, I always like to be the outsider. I prefer to be in the minority. I I, I just love it when people say something can't be done, and I just go out to prove it can be done. So, you know, having gone into being a chartered accountant with a major financial services company, I, I knew that I, I would benefit from that experience, but that's not where I ultimately wanted to go. And I had various ideas from leaving that, from having that experience with Nickelodeon, of something, to, of a business, to start up a business, but never really either... I don't know whether which one of these is more true. It's either had the confidence in the idea that it was an idea that could make a difference and could be a sustainable business, or I had the confidence in myself that I could do it. But those two things came together with this idea of Ella's Kitchen. And it came really for, from two sources. One, that professional life at Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon is this fantastic brand that empowers kids. You know, kids watch it thinking that it's made by kids because the mentality and the the research and the the, the state of mind in creating it is from a kid's point of view. So that's how I think. I'm very childlike. So, But I knew in working there that television was seen generally as a bad for kids, that they were either watching bad bad food or they were not doing exercise, they were watching television. But I knew the power of the brand that it had in, in helping kids live their lives. So I, 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 I saw the power of branding, of trust by the consumer. But I also saw we've got a problem in our society that kids are getting less healthy as, they, as the generations go by. So that's in my professional world. And at the same time, in my personal world, I was beginning to have first of my two children, Ella, and really the lived experience of seeing her grow as a baby into a toddler and the challenges we had with helping her enjoy food, eat, eat healthy food, and really the experiences of being silly, playing games, being messy, trying to get her to smile, to open her mouth, to pop a spoon in, make me cop on that actually we could, I could bring those two things together and somebody should create a brand of food that kids and babies and toddlers trust and it's all about them and it's all from their angle, yet it's healthy, good, organic food that will help them have a habit for a lifetime in in introducing good food and lots of vegetables and balanced diet. And with a new kind of brand that's trusted and and different and lots of innovation there. And I, when I thought of that, I thought, well, this is, this is it. This is, I've got confidence in the idea. I've got confidence in myself now, my mid thirties. And I resigned from my role at Nickelodeon and I registered a company and I found myself with a share certificate and 
it probably wasn't a mobile phone in those days, it was a landline phone and it's like, okay, now, day one, go out and do something. And luckily we made more right decisions than wrong decisions along the way, but they were both and Alice Kitchen was born. Yeah. And so from, from that moment when you had the idea and, and then you took the plunge to, to give it a go, what was, I was going to say what was the first big win, but seeing as your book is called Little Wins, it would be right to say what was your first little win that made you realise I'm onto something here and you know, the first time you got to sort of celebrate the fact that something was happening? Yeah, it's, it's a great example of perspective, isn't it? Because what I thought was a big win, which I'll talk about in a sec, you know, in the greater scheme of things, was a little step along the way. But my God, it was a big leap at the time. And that was, you know, I, I put together the concept of Ellis Kitchen with a mission in mind. You know, I, I understood why I was doing it from day one. And it wasn't, hey, I'm going to build a company really quickly and I'm going to sell it for as much money as I can and I'm going to go play golf for the rest of my life. It was, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? What that this company makes a difference, these products makes a difference to. And, you know, what became the mission was to improve kids' life so that they have healthy relationships with food for the whole of their life and how can we get that as early as possible by using fun and by using um, healthy ingredients and, and, and sort of bringing those two together and with that in mind I thought I've got to go big from the beginning if we're going to change the way kids think about food from the very earliest age we could be in big supermarkets so my play at the beginning was go out to the major supermarkets and pitch in as a guy with no experience as an entrepreneur never been in the food industry before but with these innovations around the packaging around the recipes around what the brand would stand for as a being a very emotional brand rather than a functional brand going into a category dominated by big players where i was arguing there's room for a small person here that, that, that can really um, shake this up and disrupt this category and a naivety so i went in and you know it took 500 calls or emails or, or just banging on doors to get meetings and then you go so through meetings and the way supermarkets work is the plumbing buyer would leave and you'd have to start again and so a whole tenacity of getting through but the big win was was i clearly remember it one evening seeing a voice message on my phone picking it up and sit, uh, hearing the person the buyer from sainsbury's say you know, we've listened to you, we're going to take a flyer, that was her word, we'll take you for six months, uh, prove yourself in that time, but here's 350 stores. And it's, oh my God, now, this is the big moment. And for about 30 seconds, it was, this is it, we've done it. And then it dawned on me, oh my God, this is the first tiny step, now we've got to do it. I've got to find the manufacturer, find the money to make the packaging of the products, we've got to deliver it on time, we've got to make sure the recipes are delicious, we've got to get the branding message over, we've got to compete with big, big multinational companies, and we've got to use it as a stepping stone to then go to the other supermarkets to begin to deliver our mission. And um, that was the seminal moment, and then everything kind of flowed from there. Yeah, and did you, at that moment when you had that sort of order i guess did you raise money or did, did you bootstrap how did you then fulfill that order yeah well i, I so as i say i was in my mid-30s and, and to get to the point of getting that phone call i'd invested twenty thousand pounds of bio money that we'd saved to get to that point and then it was we're launching in three months time i've had conversations with manufacturers and and, and you know knew how the logistics would flow but didn't have the money to buy the first stock and and, and get to market do any marketing 
So we did two things really. Um, one, my wife and I sat down and worked out that we were the risk we were prepared to take was to mortgage our house. You know, I've been working for 15 years. I had a young family. We built up all the safety of, of what we were aiming for, and now we've risked all of it with a £200,000 mortgage, an additional mortgage to put into the business. So big moments, but, you know, this is, okay, this is where your money is, where your mouth is. And then the second thing was I thought, well, that's enough, but that's, that's not enough. <laughs> There's much I can give. I didn't really want to bring investors in because I didn't think I would get the value for what I thought we could create at that stage. So I sort of worked out with my childlike creative thinking, trying to find ways where we didn't need cash, but we could deliver, we, we could get value. And really, the whole of the marketing side came from no cash. And I went to the television channels, the kids' television channels of which I had some experience of, knowing that at times in the year they didn't sell all the inventory of the advertising that they had and what did they do with it they had those minutes in the hour to sell they hadn't sold it they'd either give it to existing clients and those clients would say well that's great because now when I come back with renew my contract I'm going to go to the lower rate knowing that you've got this space or they used it for for their own marketing of their own channel and didn't get money for it and I said look I know this happens at times of year I would like to come to you with a healthy product which challenges some which addresses some of the challenges you have um but i've got no money and i'd like you to help me make it and i'd like you to play it out and i've got no money but i will give you pennies out of the pounds that i make from sales that come from people seeing this advert and so you might make money but i know you wouldn't make money if you didn't sell this place anyway so we did that and it worked and they got the ability to, to show to other small companies that television advertising, national advertising can work. And I got to be able to get up in front of a third of toddlers that we were, we were aiming for and children were aiming for from, through, through a television channel and, and didn't have to pay until after we got to market and we made the sales. So it was kind of risk-free from my point of view, but you know, it became a brand in the eyes of the target consumers straight away from day one. And that really helped grow. And then quickly, we, we used invoice financing to grow and grow and grow. And within a year, we were in the four biggest supermarkets in the UK. And we were on that trajectory where, you know, the, 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 the key thing was not running out of cash, not because we had a bad business, but because it was constantly being plowed into new stock, new marketing campaigns, and servicing the customers we were generating. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole load of lessons in there about persistence, taking risks, cash flow. Uh, so um, amazing, amazing story, really. And a lot of things went well. What didn't go well? What, what would you have done differently? Or what was a massive obstacle that you had to overcome? Well, I think more things went right than wrong. Mistakes I avoided was getting investors in too early because I wanted to do really innovative things in layering on Innovation in packaging, innovation in product, the recipe, innovation in the mission of the company and the way we marketed it. And certainly made mistakes in some of the products we tried early on. The, the first set of products worked wonderfully. Then we diversified into some other areas that perhaps we weren't adding the value in that category that we thought we were. And the mistake, I guess, was a bit of hubris in thinking we could do any product and a bit of not listening to the consumer's feedback around when it was working and when it was not. 
So I'm an absolute believer that you need to make mistakes in life to learn. And uh, mistakes are a good thing as long as they're not terminal. Um, and as long as you learn, adapt, and, um, and, and improve because of them. The bigger mistakes I actually made were with my second business after I'd sold Ellis Kitchen called Paddy's Bathroom, which we're not talking about because it doesn't exist now because it, it, it uh, didn't reach the ambitions that I hoped. And I made the mistakes there of not concentrating on the sustainability of the business over the long term, believing that in the short term, I, I could not optimize the financial side of the business rather than the brand of the business. And you need those two things together. I'm a huge, huge believer that business has changed the world. Innovation within business changes the world. And the business is the key to improving people's lives. And social business and social impact of business and having a, a mission beyond making money for a business. But it's a business and it's got to make money and it's got to satisfy shareholders and give a fair return to shareholders. And, you know, I didn't, they didn't concentrate on that side of Paddy's bathroom as much as uh, I, I should have done. You learn about yourself when things go really wrong. With Ellis Kitchen, we had two product recalls. You know, that, that's hugely, hugely emotional for the consumers who had products that weren't up to the high standards and they had children that may have been ill because they thought they'd taken our product and we didn't know where that was going to go. We didn't know why it happened. And, you know, we're in... 10,000 supermarket points of distribution around the country. What do we do? And you learn about yourself, your values, have the, the, the value of practice and preparedness, planning. And so really anyone listening as an entrepreneur will know that there are many, many more lows than highs, but you appreciate the high because you've been in the lows and you've learned from the low and you're determined not to go back to the lowest part again when something bad happens. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the company was named after your daughter. So it must have been a huge emotional connection to the business. What did it feel like when it came to selling the company? How did that feel personally? Yeah, hugely emotional. Um, and I can only speak for me and reasons why we sold our business and how I felt about selling it and how I felt since. Not, you know, and everyone will approach the reasons for sale and their feeling about it. Uh, differently but it really mattered to me it still does matter what the legacy of Ellis Kitchen is my daughter's name is still on that packaging its values and its mission is still vitally important to me and you know seven years after selling it's still delivering its mission with the culture and everything that it delivered and I'm hugely proud of, of that fact but we expanded really quickly we grew profitably from day one but we grew into America which is not just one market, it's hugely complicated. The laws and the logistics are all very different to here. And we competed against other startups or other small businesses like ours that, you know, I would say took inspiration from what we were doing and sort of came onto our patch, but we were competing with them and they did some of their own things. And, and many of them were private equity backed and were willing to take losses in the short term to get market share. And I didn't really want to risk the UK or the European businesses making huge losses in, the Amer in America. So there was a whole, what do we do in America sort of question. Do we come out of the market? Do we, do we compete with loss making? Do we find a partner? Do we find new points of distribution? Do we pivot? Or do I sell part of the company to a partner and, and, and sort of an, an equity sell? And I decided to sell. I decided to sell a minority, but to get a partner in the trade 
um, that could reduce our risks and help us grow in, in the US. And through that process, I sort of worked out that there were situations where I could think I'm selling a minority, things could go wrong and actually lose control. And that was really, really important to me. And through that process, I began to think, if that is a possibility, why don't I look at that as, as one of the scenarios that I sell the whole company and I, I leave what influence I can, but I go off and do other things with the learnings that I got. And that is how it played out. Um, so getting to, to, to finding the people we wanted to sell to um, and going through that process, hugely, hugely emotional. I thought of it, and I still you know, think that it was the right decision, by thinking about three words around the word value. Were these guys going to have the same values? I was cared about the legacy. I wanted to make sure that the people who worked at Ellers retained their roles and retained the mission and their reason for being there and Ellers Kitchen to deliver its promise. Then when we kind of reduced the, the, the potential purchasers to those that I felt had similar values, then what was the value? Did it overlap with what the value we thought we'd created? Were they prepared to, 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 to pay for that and to uh, recognize the, the asset that they were buying? And then after that, because again, I cared about the legacy, I cared about the added value that they could bring beyond their money, which was coming out of the company to its shareholder. And, you know, more distribution, more opportunities for economies of scale, more marketing opportunities, new territories, that sort of thing, were what I was looking for. So I sold to an American public company. And I think the validation that it was the right thing to do came, which is probably my proudest moment of Alice Kitchen, two years after I'd sold, when me and the existing management and the inspirational CEO that took over after me persuaded the, the public company that Ellis Kitchen should be a B corporation and baked into its constitution and its legacy going forward that it's a B Corp, that it cares as much about the environment and people as much as it does about profit, that it will operate a sustainable uh, work plan and, and business plan, and it will honor the mission that I set up. And that I know now is baked into the constitution of the company, and um, it continues to operate as a for-profit business, acting responsibly to try and deliver its mission. Yeah, amazing. And on the actual coming to selling the company, how do you go about that? What, what's the process? Do you pick up the phone? Do you send someone an email or, or is it a chance yeah. meeting? How, do, how does that come about? Well, it's, it's hugely stressful <laughs> and it's hugely unpredictable. And it's hugely longer, in my case, I guess, than I thought it would be more complicated. And I think what you learn is you're busy running your business, a fast growth business. And that's, that's, that's more than a job in itself. So surrounding yourself with... Trusted, competent, mindset-aligned people in a team where you share responsibility and you share the vision is vital to take some of the weight off your own shoulders because in deciding to sell, you're about to not only do the more than one job you're already doing trying to grow a, a fast-growth business, but then you're going to go through a sales process and you're going to be the face of that and that's a job in of itself and it's a job you've got no experience of. And so, you know, I'm sure everybody does it differently, but I want to find trusted advisors that got me, got the point of the business, got the um, point of why we were selling and could position the business in, in a way to, to potential buyers with all that in mind. And we worked with a boutique sort of advisor that had sold what I considered similar sort of companies in the UK before, like an Innocent and a Green and Black, so sort of companies. And then, you know, 
and, and then you go through all the peaks and troughs of have you found somebody if they got the values are they going to give the value are they going to give the added value because it's all work I, I would say you need to rely on your team that can sense check things for you and share with, with them the, the ups and downs the close team the, 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 the core people you know we sold to a public company so it was very um, sensitive and all the rules around who, who we could speak to within the, within the broader team uh, as well as outside uh, and then work with a trusted advisor that knows why you're selling and, and the, 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 the goal that you're trying to achieve and bring everybody on board to that point you know is it, stressful and it is all consuming and then you sign your pieces of paper and then the next day you know you don't have the company that you spent all that time developing but emotionally you've gone from a place where you're in control of the sales process and you're in control of a company to you're in control of neither and you kind of in my case mid 40s what's next what do i do what does the money that's now in my bank account mean to me and my family and what's you know is that is, is that just my legacy and what's the next 40 years going to be or is that starting point for what the next 40 years is going to be and so you know you're kind of lost or like you need support again but it is a, an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, and so I, I know that you're active with a lot of startups and scale ups. So, what are the values you look for in the people and the businesses that you, you choose to work with now? So, my whole mindset around business is too many people get it wrong in thinking it's about profit and it's about money. I think that is the outcome of the fact that it's about people. When you look at what the etymology of the word company is where it came from it's calm and panis two two words that is with bread and it's about people sitting down and breaking bread sharing an idea sharing a sense of risk sharing an excitement and a passion for something to do together it's from the same space as companion you know it's about people business is around people i can come to you as an investor and show you a business plan and you can look at that and you can pick holes in it or you can make the best business plan in the world, but it's never going to deliver the best business in the world unless somebody can deliver that plan. And it's about how those people, how you find those people, you motivate them, you understand their mindset, and you get an alignment around people's individual jobs delivering an overall mission. And so what I look for in people is, is that holistic view. It's that, that reason for doing it. It's their it's, it's the why of them as a person that I try to uncover when you're looking at an entrepreneur and wondering whether their business plan is exciting and going to exist. It's why are they doing this? Why are they putting themselves through what are going to be horrendous lows as well as brilliant highs, hopefully? It's not really about the skill set that they've got. It's around the mindset that they've got around why they're doing it and the skills that they know they haven't got that they're going to get on board with the team because the team, that, that the individual is not going to deliver their vision. A team is going to deliver that vision. And then that team will only deliver the vision if they convince other human beings, other people, that they want to buy the product or service that's going to improve their lives and that, that, that it will benefit both sides. And so whether it's a cup of coffee or whether it's a military jet, the psychology is exactly the same. Psychology beats economics. Obviously, it's got to make money and you've got to know that you've got a great business plan. But that's never going to be reality unless people can deliver it with passion, with energy, with uh, a reason that it's going to be sustainable. So that's what I look for. That, that, you know, why are you doing it? What's your big, hairy, audacious goal that everybody's telling you is impossible to do? Why do you believe it's, you can do it? 
and, and, and what's your mission? And then I decide whether, you know, that excites me, whether I get the person and, and um, understand what their people skills are so that they build that team and we go on this journey together. And I found two or three in my time and I found many that on paper were the best business plan and best idea ever. But the reason for doing it is because they saw someone else do it in another country and they think it could be done here. Well, that's not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. What sort of tips or advice can you give to people that are trying to paint a big vision, define a mission statement, and then also bring that reality? How do you tie those two together? So you've got to write your mission in the context of A, your business plan that it aligns with, but B, this culture that you want to create that brings all these people with you. So I start with a mission and, you know, many people say, is it really necessary to write that mission on day one? It's about making the product and selling that first product and knowing there's a market. That is true, but in a vacuum of the longevity and the sustainability of what you're trying to do, it's a transaction and transactions don't make great businesses. They make individual transactions. Uh, So that's the practical answer. A more esoteric answer, which I absolutely believe in, is my advice would be to think like a toddler, like the toddler you once were. So be confident, have your self-confidence that you had when you were five years old and you were exploring the world and being prepared to put one foot in front of the other in new spaces with new people that you didn't know before. You, if you don't have the confidence that this is going to succeed, why on earth should anybody else have that confidence? And that confidence wants to be tempered with things can and will go wrong and you need other people to help you. So it's not an arrogance, it's a self-confidence. You need an imagination to imagine the things that don't exist that you're going to create and the ways that you can do things and the way you can cut through that other people haven't done. You need this free thinking that doesn't say because the business plan, because the Excel spreadsheet says that you don't make enough money at this point. Well, do you need money to do this? I've already explained how we didn't use money to create advertising in our very first campaigns. We used relationships and we used vested interests and we, we created advertising without money up front. You know, you need determination and grit and persistence and ambition and collaboration and playfulness because it's going to be hard. You've got to have some joy in this. It's going to be very human. So I look and I say, just read my book, Little Wins, Huge Power of Thinking Like a Toddler. But I would say the beauty of it is we were all toddlers. And we all once looked at a world that we didn't understand and we navigated our way and mastered our way through it by making mistakes, by enjoying ourselves, by getting the help of others. But we did it. And, you know, there are skills that we should use much more now. Instead of conforming, entrepreneurs don't need to conform. They need to experiment and try things and learn from things that don't work to make things that work better. Well, I, I think there couldn't be a better message to end on, really. <laughs> I think there's, there's so much in there to learn. And absolutely, people should go and read the book because those are a lot of things that entrepreneurs should take on board. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to do the podcast. Really welcome, James. Much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. That was a great episode with Paul. I really enjoyed chatting with him about his experiences and his belief in business being a driving force for good. A fantastic riding unicorn story and evidence of founder market fit proving to be very successful once again. Next week, we have Sam Hodges. He is the growth director at Newman.com, the online clinic built for men. They've had a really fast growth story, so it's another great episode.